0: Um, I've actually told this story before, but I think it's worth um, retelling this morning. Um, there was a, a young man, and this is a true story, who was struggling in high school. Just, you know, terrible grades. It didn't look like he was going to graduate. Um, and he was actually nearing expulsion. Um, and so he, uh, but he had promised his mommy would take the SATs just, you know, to make her happy. And knew there was no chance of him doing well, but he took the SATs anyway. And um, the SATs have two sections, math and kind of verbal, English, whatever, and and uh, they're worth 800 points apiece. So the, the SAT, you know, is, a, is graded on 1,600 points. Um, to his surprise, he, re- he received his results in the mail, and it showed that he got a 1,480 on the SAT, which is astronomical. And... Uh, and um, his mother actually assumed he cheated. Um, and and he told her, he was like, I was planning on it, but they had the chairs too far away. I couldn't see anybody else's work. Um, and so at uh, so this point, he he started to wonder if he wasn't squandering his potential. And so he started attending class and doing his homework and kind of changed who he hung around with and started taking school seriously. Um, he only had basically his senior year left, so he didn't have much time to recover um, but he did manage to graduate, uh, barely, and, and he had, actually had to take some summer classes to do it. Um, so he uh, actually uh, attended a community college in Wichita, and uh, his first couple semesters, fairly soon after that, he transferred to a four-year university and then did his grad school education um, at an Ivy League school, um, after which he became one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world. Millionaire. The craziest part is, 12 years after receiving his SAT score, he got a letter. Um, the SAT board periodically reviews tests um, at their test-taking procedures and policies, and and in this study, they found that there were 13 students who received the wrong grades for their SATs. Um, his actual grade was 740. They they had assumed that that was um, 740 out of 800 for each side. And so they combined him to 1680. He actually did a 740 out of 1600. Um, and when asked why the 1480 score changed his educational involvement so dramatically, all he could say was, all I knew was that a kid that got a 1480 should go to class. <laughs> and so he started going to class. Um, this is Hope Week. And, uh, and I have to be honest, um, I'm starting to fear this week every Advent. Uh, because it seems like um, it never fails. I wind up on this week spending like the entire week trying to figure out how on earth I'm going to talk about hope in the face of the challenging times we live in without sounding trite and cliche. Um, uh, and so just once I would love to like stand kind of on the summit, like on a on a gorgeous day right at sunrise with everything ahead looking brilliant and bright and, and talk about hope in that moment. But I never seem to get to. It's always really rough weeks. Um, every year it seems like G.K. Chesterton was closer to the mark when he said this. He said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery and platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope is uh begins to be a strength i hate g k chesterton um it's been a rough week and i have no desire to like plow through all the details of what made my week long but please know that um this morning's message was a tough one for me um and thankfully uh this morning's passage kind of screamed the truth right back at me all week as i as i went through it but before we get into that, um, let's do some brain biology. Um, so far we've kind of established the, emo- the amazing kind of health and brain benefit of music and especially participating in music. Um, we talked about the latest research in counseling and metacognition, which is remarkably similar to Psalms 42, where David is kind of questioning his own emotional state and deciding that though his soul was was reflecting a true situation. His soul was downcast. Um, There was also a truer situation that he could choose to sing. And David does that in that psalm. Then last week we talked about the love drug, oxytocin, and its ability to make us feel love and how singing actually increases oxytocin levels in our blood, um, which is likely one of the reasons we sing love songs because it's the natural thing to do when you're high on oxytocin is to sing about it. Um, we dug into this love song that Solomon writes in his attempt to honor God, um, uh, the God that he like associated with love. He said, "You loved my father David, and you continue to show him love." Um, but the th- words that Solomon uses don't necessarily sound like love the way think- we think of it. They weren't mushy words. They weren't romantic words. When he wrote his love song, um, he he described something deeper and more practical. Uh, than then love, the kind of love that you can wear every day. Um, things like justice and righteousness and prosperity and flourishing. Um, if you missed any of those, I, I recommend you go back and listen because um, I believe God has been giving a timely word to our church right now. Um, but this week, um, as I said, we're looking at hope. And hope is a fascinating subject. In uh, modern neurobiology, uh, in the past 20 years, really, most of the really good neurobiology we have is only 20 years old. It's pretty new stuff. Um, fMRI imaging is is a relatively new thing. It used to be you couldn't really scan the brain without pumping radiation into it. And so you didn't do that just to study it. Like it was too it was too risky, um, too damaging. So they now have ways of studying the brain that are uh, very, very little damaged. And so they're learning all kinds of new stuff just in the last 20 years. But In the past 20 years, kind of for the first time ever, they've been able to um, understand the brain mechanisms responsible for the feelings of hope, um, which is kind of interesting. And and this has allowed scientists to kind of clarify some definitions around this idea of hope uh, quite a lot. So last week we talked about the overuse of the word love. Right, we. I love my wife. I also love this cheeseburger. Um, I love Jesus, and I love this song. And we we have this word that we use so much it almost becomes meaningless, which is sad because it's an important word. It's a big word, so it's it's a bummer that we um, that we use it to the point, point of uh, meaninglessness. But hope is similar. Um, we we might really hope. That we're having our favorite dish for dinner. Like, man, I hope she's making, you know, pasta or whatever. Um, which doesn't have much power over us because if we go and there's something different, there's really no disappointment. Like, oh, well, I was kind of hoping for this. But um, we use the word that way. Um, uh, we also use hope um, in a much deeper sense, Right. We we might hope for our favorite team or our desired politician to win. And and that stings a little bit when that hope is dashed. Like that one hangs around a little bit more um, when our when our team loses or or something. But hope goes deeper still, right? We really hope to get a promotion or a better job and it and it feels like our entire future is kinda hinge on that hope. And that and that moment, you know, it's not nearly as fleeting or trivial like suddenly hope begins to feel heavy. But it goes even deeper still, doesn't it? When it feels like hope is the air we breathe and, and the food we eat and there's, there's nothing left but this thinnest slimmer of hope and, if, and we feel like if we lose our grip on it, we're lost. How can the same feeling that applies to donuts, boy, I really hope they've got the jelly donuts left when I get up to the counter... Also describe the feeling of of hanging on for dear life. How can the same word mean both? Well, believe it or not, the the confusion is more language, um, the language surrounding hope than the actual experience of hope. Psychologists have uh, have found out that simple light hope, what they've what they've learned to def- call wishful thinking, um, is a neurobiological process that. Um, originates and flows from the reward center of the brain. It's the amygdala um, and the hippocampus through the mesolimbic pathways, if you want the fancy words. And it's basically the equivalent of a brain tickle. Like it, it's, it's just this little flutter from the reward center of the brain that in, includes some dopamine and some other fun drugs. Um... It basically amounts to nothing more than imagining how nice it would be for something to happen and the brain gets confused between that and reality and produces a little bit of the reward as though it actually happened. It's a fun feeling. You you, you imagine um, an outcome and it and just imagining it releases a little bit of the chemicals you would get if it happened. And it feels good. And we call that hope, but really it's wishful thinking. It's not very deep. So when you hope that you're going to win the lottery, lottery and you actually imagine just a little bit of what it would be like to win the lottery, your brain kind of secretes a little dopamine. Um, and as the same thing it would do if you actually did win, only just a little bit. and uh, And you might smile and feel excited, even though the rational brain knows, like, there's virtually no chance I'm going to win the lottery. Like, it doesn't matter. Just imagining it makes you feel a little good. Over the past 20 years, though, neurologically speaking, this is not hope. This is wishful thinking, and, it, and, and, it, and it's, uh, it's nice. But I think now hope is getting closer um, to what the Bible has said it is for 3,500 years. Biblical hope. Because in recent findings, sciences have learned uh, to define hope as an experience uh, we have when three realities line up in our brain at the same time. In order for a human to feel hope, real hope... They have to have a clearly defined desired outcome. Something they want to see happen. A, a clear goal, a vision. They also have to have the agency to achieve it. So they feel like they have the power and ability to achieve it. And they have to see a clear path to its accomplishment. If those three things line up, uh, then, they, then they feel and experience hope. We're going to break down more as we go deeper this morning. But vision, agency, and a way in order to feel hope. They're essential to experiencing hope. And using fMRI imaging, neurologists have found that when a person experiences real hope, an entirely different brain function happens from wishful thinking. It's nothing like the, the when you hope that they have your favorite donut when you get up to the counter. Nothing like that. The brain is working completely differently. When you feel real hope, it happens in the orbital frontal cortex, the very front of your brain, right behind your eyeballs is where it actually lights up when somebody experiences real hope. And this makes sense because this is also an incredibly important area for a lot of other functions in your, in your life. The frontal cortex is responsible for all your rational functions, your logical functions. More importantly, your executive functions, things like time management and, and, uh, and, and willpower and the, the, the power to, to get up and do something you don't want to do. That all resides in the, in the frontal cortex. So your relationship to time and hope are deeply related um, because you're you're imagining something in the future that hasn't come yet. And so it, it makes sense that hope would resign where you also have what we call your uh, uh your event horizon, how far into the future you can see. That's where hope lives, in that same region. Your ability to plan and imagine your future and imagine what you're going to do to achieve it is, is where hope lives and, re- and and resides, closely related. Your, your, your ability to ignore emotions and, and to, to, and stimuli and data and evidence is all housed in your frontal cortex. When stimuli comes in and it, and it strikes an emotion and you go, you know what, that, that was not intended to hurt me and you, and you, you realize that, that you can live beyond just what you feel, that happens in the frontal cortex where hope lives. Hope is part of all of that. And what is hope if not the ability to look past what is to what could be? And we know the part of the brain that happens is. And this is actually the coolest part of the neurobiology of hope, but we're going to actually talk about that a little bit later. But as with almost every function in neurobiology they have studied, music has an impact on hope. There's some really neat studies on it. It's pretty fascinating. There's basically kind of two landmark studies in the area of hope and music, and in one, they studied uh, the brains of a few hundred different people immediately after experiencing a disappointment, something that like damages their their hope. And when they when when people listen to um, music immediately after a disappointment, seventy percent of the participants um, found elevated action in the hope region of their brain when they listen to music. Music somehow helped them recover from a disappointment. The hope region of their brain responds to music and feels hope again um, despite uh, a uh, a disappointment. The people who uh who did not listen to music after a disappointment had zero activity in the hope center of their brain. So a pretty 70% is a pretty dramatic thing. Um, uh the other 30%, this is kind of interesting, um, wasn't just people who had like no hope. Some of the people, um, the other thirty percent felt hope no matter what. Like they're like the die-hard optimists, like my son Zachariah, where nothing ever goes wrong. Like even when things go wrong, like boy, that was a good thing that happened because you know they just spin everything for the positive. There are some people that the hope center of their brains just always lit up. They're just always happy. And then there's some that that just did not experience hope with music or not. But the other landmark study, they gave half the people music and the other half. Um, the no music and almost all the people who had music were able to experience hope after a disappointment. Um and those deprived of music did not. I mean it was almost it was almost universal on both. Um, Another interesting study about music showed that when listening to nostalgic music, um which is kind of interesting, uh the hope region of the brain completely lit up. So if they listen to something new Um, the hope center of the brain didn't necessarily respond, but when they listen to something that's nostalgic, that draws their brain back into the past, the hope center lit up. Um, They don't really have a ton of reasons, but there's a lot of theories. The Kind of the consensus is that um, when we are emotionally tied back to our path, it helps us remember back there and the fact that we made it from back there to up here, so it only makes sense that we're also going to make it out there. Like that it it kind of ties our central consciousness to time. And we're like, you know what? I've made it this far. There's a good chance I'm going to make it farther. And hope starts to light up again. Kind of interesting. But what's crazy um, is how similar this is to Psalm 77. Listen to what the psalmist says and how he changes his emotional state um, in this psalm. He says, Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will He never again be kind to me? Is His unfailing love gone forever? Have His promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He slammed the door on His compassion? And I said, "This is my fate. The Most High God has turned His hand against me." But then I recall all You have done, O Lord. I remember Your wonderful deeds of long ago. They're constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about Your mighty works. Oh God, Your ways are holy, and is and. Is there any God as mighty as you? So the songwriter starts out kind of wondering how long God's going to reject him and, and in blending his... because he's writing music here and blending music and nostalgia, uh, he chooses to sing about the old days. I'm going to sing about the things you did back then. And he starts overflowing with praise and worship. Just by remembering the things God has done, everything changes. So once again, science is catching up to what the Bible has always known. And honestly, this is life-changing stuff. Like when we talk about hope, as the magazine executive with the 740 SAT can attest, hope is crazy powerful. Anything we can do to build hope is worth it. If, if music builds hope, it's worth it. If looking back at the things God's done in the past builds hope, it's worth it. Because hope can absolutely change lives. Have you guys, anybody ever watched The Office? Anybody Office fans here? We got a few. Okay. You guys remember the Scott's Tots episode? Anybody remember that? It's a horribly painful episode to watch. And basically in the episode, Michael Scott, um, wakes up one day and realizes, um, that it's his Tots, Scott's Tots are graduating. And, and years before, he had promised them when they were in like elementary school that if they graduated high school, he'd pay for their college. He just assumed he'd be a millionaire by now. Well, he's not. He's working for a paper company. And he has to go to the school and break it to the kids that, that he, he's broke and can't pay for college. It is, it is a painful episode. It is so hard to watch. It's horrible. But believe it or not, that episode is actually a parody of a real situation. Something that actually happened. A self-made millionaire used Gene Land... Um, was asked to speak to 59 sixth grade students in an inner city class. He was trying to figure out how on earth he was going to inspire a room full of predominantly black and Puerto Rican kids in the inner city um, who statistically speaking would most likely drop out of school uh, before graduating. And so rather, and, and he was supposed to do something inspiring and inspire them towards education. And he was coming up empty. Didn't have a clue. So, um, rather than you know trying to attempt to a, to inspire them, he made them a deal. If they finished school, he would pay for their college tuition, and uh, and that simple hope in in a sixth grader's life um, changed these kids' lives. that ninety percent of them graduated. Astronomical numbers compared to any other class in that school, where their their graduation rate was around fifty percent. 90% of this class that he promised tuition to, and he actually did pay for the college tuition. He did not pull the office thing. Um, and so most of that ninety percent went on to college. Um and and the, the simple addition of hope, even in the life of an unsuspecting eleven year old, changed everything. Hope is crazy powerful. Crazy powerful. And this message would be one of my favorite messages of the whole year if I could stand up here and just talk about how powerful hope is. And how much of a difference hope makes in our brains and in our circumstances. But, hope has a dark side, doesn't it? In fact, neurobiologically speaking, hope is actually really risky. The three elements of hope that that need to be in order for us to experience the brain function of hope, which psychologists now call trait optimism. They have wishful thinking and trait optimism. Trait optimism is what we call hope. Biblical hope. like To, to, to be able to envision a better future and hold on to it. You have to have vision, agency, and a feasible path to your goal. So you need to acknowledge what's possible, what can be. You need to feel like you have the independence and the capacity to accomplish that goal. And you need to to believe that there is a real and viable path to do it. And when you have those three things, according to psychologists, the sky is the limit. Like the things that a human can, can accomplish when they have that feeling is amazing. We're going to talk about why in a little bit. But the brain will function completely differently under those circumstances. And the human creature is almost unstoppable. But the gamble is this. If one of those three characteristics falls out of the equation, not only will the brain not trigger all the mechanisms for hope, but it actually releases all the chemicals to feel hopeless. And that's a risk. That's a gamble. Your your brain on hope works almost immeasurably better than your brain on no hope. But your brain neutral works way better than your brain on hopelessness. So if you, if you have a vision and a viable path to achieve it, but you don't feel like you have the freedom and the capacity to, to make any of the moves necessary, you don't stay even. You don't stay, you don't stay equal. You don't walk away and go, oh, shucks, didn't work out. Your brain actually releases the chemicals to feel down and hopeless. If you have all the agency in the world and the future is infinite but you can't imagine it you can't you can't picture a better future you can't see anything better you don't stay neutral you fall into hopelessness and if you see a future and you have agency but you can't imagine any of the ways that you might be able to get there you don't stay even you go to hopelessness and that is a crazy gamble Your brain is way, way, way better on hope. It is. Your body is better. Your soul is better on hope. Everything is better on hope. But if you try to hope and you fall short, you're worse off than you were to begin with. And we do not need neurobiology to tell us this, do we? Because every single one of us has experienced it. The truth is maybe one of the worst parts of being an adult is this truth right here. We know that hope is risky. Every single one of us feels how risky hope is. We've learned it the hard way. We've hoped and come up short and and you don't have to tell us that maybe it would have been better to not hope at all. We feel that in our guts. So quick survey. Raise your hand if you've ever felt like hope, like real hope, tickling at the edge of your brain and you shut it down because it was too risky. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't need neurobiology to tell us that hope is a risk, that hope is that hope is a huge gamble that you feel like you're putting like all your chips on the table. No matter what the neurobiologist says, it feels like hope comes from like the softest, most vulnerable part of our hearts. Not our frontal cortex. Or maybe it's our guts. And you don't have to get hit there too many times before you start getting really per- protective of that spot. When they were pushing the the transcontinental railroad across America, they started cutting through the mountainous regions with chisels and and hammer, like hammers at first and they quickly moved to black powder blasting but not long into the process someone introduced nitroglycerin in addition to the to this powerful liquid allowing them to move from they were making about 1.18 feet per day through the mountains that is not much per day chipping through these mountains and when they introduced nitroglycerin, they immediately went to almost two feet a day. And pretty quickly, once they got the hang of it, they were up over four feet a day. Quadrupled their potential just by adding this, this, this one element. But there was a cost. They didn't really keep close records, especially of the Chinese. But by all historical accounts, way over a thousand people died just on early explosions of nitroglycerin. Just in, in adding nitroglycerin, they lost over a thousand people. I mean, they lost way more than that in other ways, but just nitroglycerin alone cost at least a thousand lives. Hope feels like nitroglycerin at times. So much potential and so much risk. And I think this morning's psalm steps into that tension like a giant warning sign. And it's easy to miss because we're reading um, from the from the end of the book of Psalms. Uh, uh it's it's almost like the last ten seconds on a drug commercial. You guys are familiar with this? You know, like, hey, try Big Pharma Sleep Aid. You know, the images of tossing and turning at night and you know, demoralized actors with no makeup, fighting through the day and with no spirit. They swallow this little pill and the orchestral music starts and the fluffy pillows and, and they, they're tackling their day and everything looks great. And then this little voice at the end says, you know, ask you if, if Pharma, is, or if, or if Big Pharma and Sleep Aid is right for you, please talk to your doctor. Side effects may include, you know, including death and, and you might even go to hell's fire. You know, like it's the worst things possible, you know. This morning's psalm isn't that bad. But it seems to come in this as this really dire warning at the end of the book of Psalms. Theologians and rabbis call the last five songs in the book the final Hallel, or the final Hallelujah, and they believe that they were written by by the rabbis that compiled the book of Psalms. This is kind of the the final word um, on the on the Psalms, on this kind of worship playlist that they had, the big medley number at the end of the musical, you know, where they. Do a little bit of every song that's been in the musical. You know, they put it at the end. This is the final hallel, the final word on this whole book. When you take the book of songs in, in total, it's a very hopeful book. It's full of incredibly uplifting praise and honor to God, but it also includes music for your darker days, laments, and even those have what we call the but. We're looking for our but. They have that moment where the psalmist is like, everything is terrible, but I know you're still good. And, and even those psalms are uplifting when we take them all the way through. And this collection of music builds and increases our hope. As this playlist becomes the score of the, the movies we call our lives, the music crescendos into this big finale called The Final Hallel. The last five books and they're just amazing worship pieces they're just they're great let everything that has breath praise the lord these big worship numbers but the final hallel begins with this dire warning and when we consider how risky hope is uh this makes sense i'm reading from psalms 146 this is the first psalm of the final hallel I'm going to read it from the message because I love the way the message captures the Psalms. It says, Hallelujah, O oh my soul, praise God. All my life long I'll praise God. Singing songs to my God as long as I live. Don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life, of salvation life. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. Instead, get your help from the God of Jacob. Put your hope in God and no real blessings. God made sky and soil, sea and all the fish in it. He always does what He says. He defends the wronged. He feeds the hungry. God frees prisoners. He gives sight to the blind and lifts up the fallen. God loves good people, protects strangers, takes the sight of orphans and widows, but makes short work of the wicked. God is in charge always. Zion's God is God for good. Hallelujah. Do you hear the warning in it though? Don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life, of salvation. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. One of the things that we've been doing in this series is to stop and listen to the song playing in the background of our culture right now. And I don't know if you've heard it or not, but this verse is not the soundtrack of our world right now. With the introduction of the internet into our daily lives, the song of the expert has grown very loud in our world. Have you noticed this? There's a new study every single day on what we should eat and, and, and not just like, uh, if, if you, if you eat, you know, you'll, uh, you might lose a little weight, but like, but like, this is the hope to live forever. Like it's, it's pitched like this is, this is everything you've ever wanted. Eat like this and you'll you'll look great and you'll have boundless energy. Like it's not just like a little little things. It's like they're they're selling the whole farm if you'll just buy this. What we should drink is analyzed by experts. Experts have a lot to say about the latest data on raising kids and and, and how this'll make them turn out violent. This video gonna do that. And we're we're even told now that our young people are only messed up because we chose their gender for them the way that we've done it for six to ten thousand years. We looked down and said, "Oh, that's what you are." Like, and now that's ruining our kids apparently, and 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 so kids throw temper tantrums, and it's not just kids throwing temper tantrums because temper tantrums are one thing. I threw temper tantrums. You threw temper tantrums. We all did it. But now we've got experts telling us that that this is not okay. That's the problem. Be one thing if your kid was just throwing a fit. That's. A, I mean that's. We've all through fits. That's part of it. We've got the experts now telling us. That's the problem. It's not what the kids are doing. The kids are, are doing what kids do. They said, we've got experts telling us we've got to let them do it. Experts tell us what car we're allowed to drive if we want any hope that our planet's going to be here for our kids. And which stock we want to buy if we have any hope of retiring. And of course we just went through a pandemic and the world renowned experts were all saying different things at the same time and not just that they were trying to convince us that every real expert, you know, says this, but they were all like, if you have any hope of surviving, you have to do this. Listening to the experts. Every day we're bombarded by news showing some expert head, you know, talking head. Saying that the other side's talking head on the other channel is, is wrong and the only real hope for the nation is to do it my way. You know, act now. Vote for the right candidate. Stay tuned for this important information after the break. All of our hope hangs on it. And into this chaos where hope is being pushed and peddled to the highest bidder, as long as you're willing to put your hope in the wrong things, The psalmist steps in with this huge warning. That kind of hope is dangerous. Putting your hope in the wrong things is the song of our culture. That's what they're singing. Put your hope in this. Put your hope in that. Put your hope in this. Come hope over here. Whether it's a diet or a candidate or a product or a jab or a denomination or a pastor or a party or whatever. Misplaced hope leads to hopelessness. And that's way worse. Hopelessness is worse than never hoping at all. And one of the signature elements of our culture is hopelessness right now. We talked about this last week. Every, every marker for, for mental and emotional health is, is off the chart. It's in the toilet. And I think part of the problem is we're peddling bad hope. We're peddling bad hope. And when you peddle bad hope, it leads to hopelessness. It doesn't stay neutral. You don't go, shucks, that didn't work. Back to life. Every time you, you gamble your hope and lose, you 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 get worse off. I feel like the psalmist knew that. The, the book of Psalms is screaming at us, hope in God, hope in God. As we come to the, the final book, the final Hallel, the psalmist Is saying, please don't put your hope in the wrong places. Put your hope in God, because anything else will disappoint. And disappointed hope is dangerous. But, and maybe this is the most beautiful but in the Bible. But, joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. The psalmist recognizes we need hope. That's what I love about the psalmist. The psalmist isn't going, hey, don't, don't hope. It's too dangerous. Don't do it. The psalmist doesn't say that. The psalmist doesn't say, hey, you don't want to risk hoping because you'll be disappointed and disappointed hope because we've all felt that. We've all felt that. I don't want to risk hoping. It's too, it it hurts too much. It's too risky. The psalmist says, "No, no, 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 you need hope. It is so important. It is so powerful. It's so much part of the human brain. The poet says your hope has to be placed right. There's only one thing that can bear the weight of your hope. It's like nitroglycerin. It's, It's powerful, but risky. And if you put it in the wrong place, it can do damage. Last week we talked about how our culture has this insidious song playing in the background of our lives right now—that says biblical love, the kind of love that can change you—and and though it might sting at first, has the potential to actually help. The the culture is calling that hate right now, and that's that's a dangerous song. And almost as insidious is is a culture that's overflowing with songs of hope. Right now there is so much like hope that, that the government's gonna be able to fix this, hope that we can fix every ailment, hope that we can end human evil, save the planet, that every little creature living on it can, can survive, we can eliminate poverty, and we can just build our tower all the way up to the heavens. And we've played that game before, haven't we? And that song of hope is playing in the background and it leaves out one of the most important pieces of hope. And the psalmist who most likely wrote this psalm from captivity, the, most of the Jewish rabbis say that these last five psalms were written in, in Babylonian captivity. And, and, and the psalmist knows we had a great army. We had wealth. We had a walled city. We, we had strong allies. At the end of the day, none of that helped us. Here we are in Babylon. We put our hope in all the wrong things. And look where we are. And from that experience, he's going, People, put your hope in God. There's nothing else. We need to hang on to the one thing that can't be moved. There's this famous story in the book of Daniel of three young guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always call them Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael because that was their Jewish names. And, the, and, the, and they passed a law. These, and these three had done great. They're like some of the king's favorites. But they passed a law that, that everybody had to bow down and worship the king's statue when the music played or they'd be thrown in the fiery furnace. And, and these three teenage boys won't bow. And everybody bows and it's really hard to not stand out when everybody's bowing and you're the one not bowing. We stick out pretty quick when that happens. But the part that's always stood out to me is this statement that they made just before going in the fiery furnace. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods, or worship the gold statue you have set up. Do you know how easy it would have been to just put their hope in the King's mercy? Like, please, just spare us, O King. We'll do anything, blah, blah, They could have put their hope in their own track record, knowing, you know what? God has been really good this far. Like, God looked after us. They could have put their hope in God's forgiveness and said, you know what? If we just bow once, God will forgive us, Surely. They do they don't do any of that. These three brave kids decide the only safe place to put their hope, the only thing that's going to hold up to it in this horrible situation, is we just put our hope in God. If that means we go through the fire, we go through the fire. But if I put my hope in any of those other things, there's a good chance it crumbles and everything falls apart. In the worst situation possible, they say, you know what? We're not going to bow. We're going to put our hope in God. And however it turns out, that's the safer bet. And their hope was not in vain, of course. Abraham lived under the blessing and pressure of of a ton of promises from God. And all of these hopes and dreams rested on the the young shoulders of his son Isaac. Everything God had promised is is in this one kid. So you can imagine his shock when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And in that moment, Abraham proved that his hope was never really in Isaac at all. He easily could have said, I can't. This is all my hope. Like, everything I've done is, is wrapped up in this kid. All my hope is right here. And he doesn't do that. And, and the writer of Hebrews, while analyzing this story, comes to the same conclusion. Deciding that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, the hope was never in Isaac to begin with. The hope was in God all along. And here's the deal, from, from, from the brain, for the brain to experience hope, real hope, the hot kind of hope that can change outcomes, there needs to be vision, agency, and a way. And this is where the gospel, this is what it's all about. God sent His Son into the world. This, this, this is beautiful, and it's why we celebrate this time of year. But it was way more than just the arrival of Jesus. Because while Jesus was on earth, He faced the enemy of hope. And that was kind of the point. Because the psalmist knows the the real enemy of hope. Mere humans don't have what it takes. When they die, their projects die with them. Death is the enemy of hope. And the psalmist says, when, when humans die, they die. End of story. They're done. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're facing death. Isaac was facing death. When his dad raised the dagger, death is the period at the end of the sentence. No more hope. So when Jesus walks the earth, hope enters the story like a big bucket of nitroglycerin. For 1500 years, since the day that Moses said there was going to be another prophet who's a way bigger deal than me. For that long, there was this nagging, tickling hope that God would send the Messiah. And when Jesus shows up on Christmas morning, hope, dangerous hope, powerful hope, story-changing hope enters. And to those who recognized Him, Jesus was everything that Israel had hoped for. He was doing everything they would hoped the Messiah could do. And, and His closest friends dared to take the gamble to hope in Him. And and their hopes were dashed. As Jesus hung on the cross and died, the nitroglycerin blew up. And, And the devastation was considerable. Death, the great enemy of hope, won. For three days. Until Easter morning when Jesus destroys the enemy of hope. And all of a sudden, several hundred years after the author of this morning's psalm, warns us against putting our hope in anything that ends in death. Jesus basically screams from the tomb, that's me, I'm the one you hope in. And that is what the Gospel message, the true hope of the world is. We have all the power and potential that comes with hope with none of the risk. When the only thing that destroys hope is destroyed... We have hope. Because what the psalmist is saying in Psalms 146 is that properly placed hope never disappoints. Never disappoints. We're closing out this year. We've been trying to focus on on mental and emotional health for the last year. Especially what the Bible has to say about our mental health. and, And nothing hits home like the topic of hope. Did you know your brain actually... The rational part of your brain, the frontal cortex, the the part that makes us human, where where all of our best human capacity rests, only works about fifty to sixty percent as as good um, when you're when you're under stress, when you're under cortisol, when you're anxious, or or when you have cortisol in your brain. The frontal cortex works about fifty percent as well. It's it really doesn't. Work. They 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 have taken people who. Uh, uh, they give them a math test, something they can score in the 80, 85 percentile. Something they're, they're pretty good at. Um, have them take it several times till they till they got a pretty good score. Then they stress them out and have them take the same thing, and most of them will score around 30%, 30 to 40% on the same math test that they can score 80% on in a calm state. Just your brain doesn't work on cortisol. Doesn't work nearly as well, which is 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 important. Like it's it's not supposed to, because cortisol, the stress hormone which which rob's cognitive function its whole job is to crank the body up several notches so that if there's a risk you do one of two three one of three things you fight you fight you run or you freeze fight flight or freeze like those are the three things and and what your brain does not want to be doing in that moment is if i'm walking through the woods and i see a tiger i don't want to go oh what kind of tiger is that i wonder if it's a mean tiger is that a boy tiger like so the brain's like, shut down the rational part of the brain, because that sucker is slow. <laughs> like we need to move fast. And so cortisol's designed to to turn your brain off so that you can move without thinking. And it's and it's really important to do that. You you do not want your brain getting analytical in a in a life and death moment. And so God gave us this capacity to turn the brain off so I can move quick. And I don't have to think, I don't have to rationalize anything. I just I either run, I fight, or I freeze up, whatever. So the the cocktail that your brain produces under stress is designed to bypass all of the thinking immediately if needed. And this is great if there's a predator nearby. But the problem is our brains don't really have like one cocktail for if there's a wolf approaching you and a different one if you're in a fight with your spouse. It's all the same cocktail, unfortunately. Your brain doesn't know the difference between I'm in a life or death situation and I'm really anxious about my finances you get the same cocktail. Cortisol in both situations. And, and, and though turning off your analytical brain is great in the face of a wolf, not so good when you're trying to make really important decisions with your spouse. Like, not so good when you have to make actual real decisions on what you're going to do to proceed to have this cocktail bath shutting down half of your brain power. My favorite piece of the neurological knowledge that we've picked up about the study of hope is the fact that when the brain is experiencing hope, one of the primary functions of hope is to shield the cerebral cortex against cortisol. When you feel hope, anxiety has no impact on your frontal cortex. You can still think rationally when you have hope. Even when you're stressed, the stress does not impact your frontal cortex when you actually feel uh, hope blocks the, the executive function region from the effects of cortisol. It's super cool. So all these people who score terrible on a test, if they have hope, they're able to recover from cortisol quickly. It blocks the frontal cortex from cortisol, and they don't lose rational function, even in a stressful situation. Hope makes all the difference. So, how do we respond to this? This was a tough week I, I I told you that I got bad news about people that I really love and care about like more than you're supposed to get in a week. I got phone calls talking people down from from suicide uh, family situations, marital situations, it's just been one of those weeks. And it's getting to where, you know, they tell you never pray for patience, like, you know, because God will put you in situations where you have to have patience. I'm starting to get that way with hope. Never preach about hope. (laughs) Just don't do it. It's risky. Because you find yourself in a situation and you're like, God, where's the hope? Where's the hope? One of the things that draws me to the Christian faith, and I preach about it all the time, is the fact that That I believe living life with Jesus is better. Like, I I think that the guidelines and precepts of Scripture that hit us, like strict rules and laws and, and, you know, uh, prohibitions and whatnot, I think these are wisdom from an eternally wise and loving God, um, on our behalf. And to ignore them is to do so at our own peril. Like, I think living a godly life is the best way to live. And I tend to avoid topics like heaven and hell primarily because I really love Jesus. And I, I want to sell Jesus to people. I want people to fall in love with Jesus. And sometimes our heaven and hell talk is really selfish. It's like, I don't want to burn. If this is the way I keep from burning, I'll do it. You don't even have to know or like Jesus to want to make that decision. Like And so I like talking about Jesus and the benefit of, of walking with Jesus. Self Heaven and hell is usually about self-preservation. And that can be a little bit selfish at times. So I don't talk much about heaven and hell, but on weeks like this, it comes to me that until Jesus' return, death is the end game for all of us. Everyone I'm praying for, if every single person I'm praying for gets healed, they're still going to die, eventually. And don't get me wrong, I still want to see them get healed. I'm not saying, oh well, that's the, you know, who cares. But even healing is only temporary. So if you don't cling to a hope that goes beyond death, then what are you hoping in? If my hope does not include heaven, it's pretty bleak out there. So in weeks like this, I rejoice that death has no claim on my hope. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is, is to stop this week and listen to the song of hope playing in the background of your life, in the background of your mind. What are you putting your hope in? What, what, is, what is hope attached to this week? Are you hoping in economic recovery? Are, are you hoping for cheaper groceries? Are you, are you hoping that you'll get a raise? Are you hoping you know your party puts up a better candidate? Are you hoping um, for, for, for anything other than, than God? Because if so, that's misplaced hope and it's dangerous. We serve the God who crushed death. What on earth do we have to fear? Sometimes people who trust in the, in the sovereignty of God are, are considered cold and calloused. But I can tell you from my personal experience, there is nothing cold or detached about putting my hope in God and His sovereignty and God alone. Especially on weeks like this. You hit a point where you realize, oh my gosh, it's God, it's God or nothing. I think if the psalmist has it right, we'd be fools to do anything but put our faith in God and God alone.